Chapter Twelve of Izzy Popinjar. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Bob Strigley, Charlottesville, Virginia, USA. Is he Popinjar by Anthony Trollope? Chapter Twelve. Miss Mildmay and Jack De Baron. Lady George was not left long in her new house without visitors. Early on the day after her arrival, Mrs. Houghton came to her, and began at once with great volubility to explain how the land lay, and to suggest how it should be made to lie for the future. "'I am so glad you have come. As soon, you know, as they positively forbade me to get on horseback again this winter, I made up my mind to come to town. What is there to keep me down there if I don't ride?' I promised to obey if I was brought here, and to disobey if I was left there. Mr. Houghton goes up and down, you know. It is hard upon him, poor old fellow. But then the other thing would be harder on me. He and Papa are together somewhere now, arranging about the spring meetings. They have got their stables joined, and I know very well who will have the best of that. A man has got to get up very early to see all round Papa. But Mr. Houghton is so rich it doesn't signify. And now, my dear, what are you going to do? And what is Lord George going to do? I am dying to see Lord George. I dare say you are getting a little tired of him by this time. Indeed, I am not. You haven't picked up courage enough yet to say so. That's it, my dear. I've brought cards from Mr. Houghton, which means to say that though he is down somewhere at Newmarket in the flesh, he is supposed to have called upon you and Lord George. And now we want you both to come and dine with us on Monday. I know Lord George is particular, and so I've brought a note. You can't have anything to do yet, and of course you'll come. Hooten will be back on Sunday, and goes down again on Tuesday morning. To hear him talk about it, you'd think he was the keenest man in England across a country. Say that you'll come. I'll ask Lord George. Fiddle-dee-dee! Lord George will only be too delighted to come and see me. I've got such a nice cousin to introduce you to not one of the germane sort you know who are all perhaps a little slow this man is jack de baron a nephew of papa's he's in the cold streams and i do think you'll like him there's nothing on earth he can't do from waltzing down to polo and old mildmay will be there and gus mildmay who is dying in love with jack and is jack dying in love with gus oh dear no not a bit you needn't be afraid jack de baron has just five hundred pounds a year and his commission and must i should say be over head and ears in debt miss mildmay may perhaps have five thousand for her fortune put this and that together and you can hardly see anything comfortable in the way of matrimony can you then i fear your jack is mercenary mercenary of course he's mercenary that is to say he doesn't want to go to destruction quite at one leap but he's awfully fond of falling in love, and when he is in love he'll do almost anything except marry. Then if I were you I shouldn't ask Gus to meet him. She can fight her own battles, and wouldn't thank me at all if I were to fight them for her after that fashion. There'll be nobody else except Hooten's sister Hedda. You've never met Hedda Hooten? I've heard of her. I should think so. Not to know her... I forget the words, but if you don't know Hedda Hooten, you're just nowhere. She has lots of money and lives all alone, and says whatever comes uppermost and does what she pleases. She goes everywhere and is up to everything. 
I always made up my mind I wouldn't be an old maid, but I declare I envy Hedda Hooden. But then she'd be nothing unless she had money. There'll be eight of us, and at this time of the year we dine at half-past seven sharp. Can I take you anywhere? The carriage can come back with you. Thank you, no. I am going to pick Lord George up at the Carlton at four. How nice! I wonder how long you'll go on picking up Lord George at the Carlton. She could only suppose when her friend was gone that this was the right kind of thing. No doubt Lady Susanna had warned her against Mrs. Houghton, but then she was not disposed to take Lady Susanna's warnings on any subject. Her father had known that she intended to know the woman, and her father, though he had cautioned her very often as to the old women at Manor Cross, as he called them, had never spoken a word of caution to her as to Mrs. Houghton, and her husband was well aware of the intended intimacy. She picked up her husband and rather liked being kept waiting a few minutes at the club door in her brougham. Then they went together to look at a new picture which was being exhibited by gaslight in Bond Street, and she began to feel that the pleasures of London were delightful. "'Don't you think those two old priests are magnificent?' she said, pressing on his arm in the obscurity of the darkened chamber. "'I don't know that I care much about old priests,' said Lord George. "'But the heads are so fine.' I dare say. Sacerdotal pictures never please me. Didn't you say you wanted to go to Swan and Edgar's? He would not sympathize with her about pictures, but perhaps she would be able to find out his taste at last. He seemed quite well satisfied to dine with the Hootons, and did, in fact, call at the house before that day came round. I was in Berkeley Square this morning, he said one day, but I didn't find anyone. No one ever is at home, I suppose, she said. Look here, there have been Lady Brabazon and Mrs. Patmore Green and Mrs. Montacute Jones. Who is Mrs. Montacute Jones? I have never heard of her. Dear me, how very odd. I dare say it was kind of her to come. And yesterday the Countess of Care called. Is not she some relative? She is my mother's first cousin. And then there was dear old Miss Tallowax, and I wasn't at home to see one of them. No one, I suppose, ever is at home in London, unless they fix a day for seeing people. Lady George, having been specially asked to come sharp to her friend's dinner-party, arrived with her husband exactly at the hour named, and found no one in the drawing-room. In a few minutes Mrs. Houghton hurried in, apologizing. "'It's all Mr. Houghton's fault, indeed, Lord George. He was to have been in town yesterday, but would stay down and hunt to-day.' Of course the train was late, and of course he was so tired that he couldn't dress without going to sleep first. As nobody else came for a quarter of an hour, Mrs. Houghton had an opportunity of explaining some things. "'Has Mrs. Montacute Jones called? I suppose you were out of your wits to find out who she was. She's a very old friend of Papa's, and I asked her to call. She gives awfully swell parties, and has no end of money.' She was one of the Montacutes of Montacute, and so she sticks her own name on to her husband's. He's alive, I believe, but he never shows. I think she keeps him somewhere down in Wales. How odd! It is a little queer, but when you come to know her you'll find it will make no difference. She's the ugliest old woman in London, but I'd be as ugly as she is to have her diamonds. I wouldn't, said Mary. "'Your husband cares about your appearance,' said Mrs. Houghton, turning her eyes upon Lord George. He simpered and looked pleased, and did not seem to be at all disgusted by their friend's slang, and yet 
had she talked of awfully swell parties, he would, she was well aware, have rebuked her seriously. Miss Houghton, Hedda Houghton, was the first to arrive, and she somewhat startled Mary by the gorgeous glories of her dress, though Mrs. Houghton afterwards averred that she wasn't a patch upon Mrs. Montacute Jones. But Miss Houghton was a lady, and though over forty years of age, was still handsome. "'Been hunting to-day, has he?' she said. "'Well, if he likes it, I shan't complain. But I thought he liked his ease too well to travel fifty miles up to town after riding about all day.' "'Of course he's knocked up, and at his age it's quite absurd,' said the young wife. "'But, Hedda, I want you to know my particular friend, Lady George Germain. Lord George, if he'll allow me to say so, is a cousin, though I'm afraid we have to go back to Noah to make it out.' "'Your great-grandmother was my great-grandmother's sister. Uh, "'That's not so very far off.' "'When you get to grandmothers, no fellow can understand it, can they, Mary?' "'Then came Mr. and Mrs. Mildmay. "'He was a grey-haired old gentleman, rather short and rather fat, "'and she looked to be just such another girl as Mrs. Houghton herself had been, "'though blessed with more regular beauty.' She was certainly handsome, but she carried with her that wearied air of being nearly worn out by the toil of searching for a husband, which comes upon some young women after the fourth or fifth year of their labors. Fortune had been very hard upon Augusta Mildmay. Early in her career she had fallen in love while abroad with an Italian nobleman, and had immediately been carried off home by her anxious parents. Then in London she had fallen in love again with an English nobleman, an eldest son, with wealth of his own. Nothing could be more proper, and the young man had fallen also in love with her. All her friends were beginning to hate her with virulence, so lucky had she been, when all of a sudden the young lord told her that the match would not please his father and mother, and that therefore there must be an end of it. What was there to be done? All London had talked of it. All London must know the utter failure. Nothing more cruel, more barefaced, more unjust had ever been perpetrated. A few years since, all the mild maids in England, one after another, would have had a shot at the young nobleman. But in these days, there seems to be nothing for a girl to do but to bear it and try again. So Augusta Mildmay bore it, and did try again, tried very often again, and now she was in love with Jack de Baron. The worst of Gus Mildmay was that, through it all, she had a heart, and would like the young man would like them, or perhaps dislike them, equally to her disadvantage. Old gentlemen, such as Mr. Houghton, had been willing to condone all her faults and all her loves, and to take her as she was. But when the moment came, she would not have her Houghton, and then she was in the market again. Now, a young woman entering the world cannot make a greater mistake than not to know her own line, or knowing it, not to stick to it. Those who are thus weak are sure to fall between two stools. If a girl chooses to have a heart, let her marry the man of her heart, and take her mutton chops and bread and cheese, her stuffed gown, and her six children as they may come. But if she can decide that such horrors are horrid to her, and that they must at any cost be avoided, then let her take her hooten when he comes, and not hark back upon feelings and fancies, upon liking and loving, upon youth and age. If a girl has money and beauty, too, of course she can pick and choose. Gus Mildmay had no money to speak of, but she had beauty enough to win either a working barrister or a rich old sinner. 
she was quite able to fall in love with the one and flirt with the other at the same time but when the moment for decision came she could not bring herself to put up with either at present she was in real truth in love with jack de baron and had brought herself to think that if jack would ask her she would risk everything but were he to do so which was not probable she would immediately begin to calculate what could be done by jack's moderate income and her own small fortune she and mrs houghton kissed each other affectionately being at the present moment close in each other's confidences and then she was introduced to lady george adelaide hasn't a chance was miss mildmay's first thought as she looked at the young wife then came jack de baron mary was much interested in seeing a man of whom she had heard so striking an account and for the love of whom she had been told that a girl was almost dying of course all that was to be taken with many grains of salt but still the fact of the love and the attractive excellence of the man had been impressed upon her she declared to herself at once that his appearance was very much in his favour and a fancy passed across her mind that he was somewhat like that ideal man of whom she herself had dreamed ever so many years ago as it seemed to her now before she had made up her mind that she would change her ideal and accept lord george germain he was about the middle height light-haired broad-shouldered with a pleasant smiling mouth and well-formed nose but above all he had about him that pleasure-loving look that appearance of taking things jauntily and of enjoying life which she in her young girlhood had regarded as being absolutely essential to a pleasant lover there are men whose very eyes glance business whose every word imports care who step as though their shoulders were weighted with thoughtfulness who breathe solicitude and who seem to think that all the things of life are too serious for smiles lord george was such a man though he had in truth very little business to do and then there are men who are always playfellows with their friends who even should misfortune be upon them still smile and make the best of it who come across one like sunbeams and who even when tears are falling produce the tints of a rainbow such a one mary lovelace had perhaps seen in her childhood and had then dreamed of him such a one was jack de baron at any rate to the eye and such a one in truth he was of course the world had spoiled him he was in the guards he was fond of pleasure he was fairly well off in regard to all his own wants for his cousin had simply imagined those debts with which ladies are apt to believe that young men of pleasure must be overwhelmed he had gradually taught himself to think that his own luxuries and his own comforts should in his own estimation be paramount to everything he was not naturally selfish but his life had almost necessarily engendered selfishness marrying had come to be looked upon as an evil as had old age not of course an unavoidable evil but one into which a man will probably fall sooner or later to put off marriage as long as possible and when it could no longer be put off to marry money was a part of his creed in the meantime the great delight of his life came from women's society he neither gambled nor drank he hunted and fished and shot deer and grouse and occasionally drove a coach to windsor but little love affairs flirtation and intrigues which were never intended to be guilty but which now and again had brought him into some trouble gave its charm to his life 
On such occasions he would too at times be very badly in love, assuring himself sometimes with absolute heroism that he would never again see this married woman, or declaring to himself in moments of self-sacrificial grandness that he would at once marry that unmarried girl. And then, when he had escaped from some especial trouble, he would take to his regiment for a month, swearing to himself that for the next year he would see no women besides his aunts and his grandmother. When making this resolution he might have added his cousin Adelaide. They were close friends, but between them there had never been the slightest spark of a flirtation. In spite of all his little troubles, Captain de Baron was a very popular man. There was a theory abroad about him that he always behaved like a gentleman, and that his troubles were misfortunes rather than faults. Ladies always liked him, and his society was agreeable to men, because he was neither selfish nor loud. He talked only a little, but still enough not to be thought dull. He never bragged or bullied or bounced. He didn't want to shoot more deer or catch more salmon than another man. He never cut a fellow down in the hunting field. He never borrowed money, but would sometimes lend it when a reason was given. He was probably as ignorant as an owl of anything really pertaining to literature, but he did not display his ignorance. He was regarded by all who knew him as one of the most fortunate of men. He regarded himself as being very far from blessed, knowing that there must come a speedy end to the things which he only half enjoyed, and feeling partly ashamed of himself in that he had found for himself no better part. Jack, said Mrs. Hooton, I can't blow you up for being late because Mr. Hooton has not yet condescended to show himself. Let me introduce you to Lady George Germain. Then he smiled in his peculiar way, and Mary thought his face the most beautiful she had ever seen. Lord George Germain, who allows me to call him my cousin, though he isn't as near as you are, my sister-in-law, you know. Jack shook hands with the old lady in his most cordial manner. I think you have seen Mr. Mildmay before, and Miss Mildmay. Mary could not but look at the greeting between the two, and she saw that Miss Mildmay almost turned up her nose at him. She was quite sure that Mrs. Hooton had been wrong about the love. There had surely only been a pretense of love. But Mrs. Hooton had been right, and Mary had not yet learned to read correctly the signs which men and women hang out. At last Mr. Hooton came down. "'Upon my word,' said his wife, "'I wonder you ain't ashamed to show yourself.' "'Who says I'm not ashamed? I'm very much ashamed. But how can I help it if the trains won't keep their time? We were hunting all day to-day. Nothing very good, Lord George, but on the trot from eleven to four. That tires a fellow, you know. And the worst of it is I've got to do it again on Wednesday, Thursday, and Saturday.' "'Is there a necessity?' asked Lord George. "'When a man begins that kind of thing, he must go through with it. "'Hunting is like women. It's a jealous sport. "'Lady George, may I take you down to dinner? "'I am so sorry to have kept you waiting.'" End of chapter 12